You are entering the Freedom Hut. Hurricane Florence makes landfall with some massive flooding underway in North Carolina and looks like the saturation is going to continue. We'll get into the latest on that. Plus, Kavanaugh's allegation looks incredibly shaky. The desperate Democrats are coming after him with an 11th hour Hail Mary smear attempt. We'll discuss that. And speaking of smears, the New York Times writes a hit piece on a member of Trump's cabinet that is completely false, folks. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. We do know from the text revealed by Strzok and Page yesterday that we now are at a different place. The walls are closing in, but they're not closing in on the president. They're closing in on the FBI and the Department of Justice under President Obama. Those text messages by Strzok and Page, which reveal an illegal media strategy to illegally and criminally release FISA warrant information and name a U.S. citizen whose information they gave to the New York Times is a criminal offense. James Comey, Strzok, uh, McCabe, they're all going down on the FISA warrant stuff. That's just not even an open question anymore. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, folks. I think the hour is nearing. It is almost upon us. It's not there quite yet. When we will finally get to see some of what the deep state really doesn't want us to. The stuff that they've been desperately trying to keep out of public view. I think we're, we're reaching the point where it's going to happen. Uh, we're going to see that, the, that there was a group in the FBI and some in the DOJ who took it upon themselves to wage, let's say, an eight or ten person campaign of senior government officials to abuse their power to abuse surveillance, to leak, to break the law, to collude, to stop Donald Trump from being president. And then once they were unable to do that, to uh, to justify their decisions and their actions during the campaign and to try and ensnare him in a, an investigation since they could not prevent his presidency. And that investigation haunts the administration to this day, the Mueller probe. I spoke to Jim Jordan today at Congress about this. I said, what, what can you tell me about this leaked strategy text message that was exchanged between Strzok and Page? And he, he thought it was preposterous, just like I did. As soon as I heard it, that they're saying this is somehow a strategy to prevent leaks, that's, that's, that's unserious, folks. We are not idiots. As much as the media would like to pretend, those of us who support Trump are not going to just accept whatever it is that they tell us. If they tell it to us enough and they're nasty enough and they try to browbeat us into submission, it's not going to happen. We're going to continue to fight on this because this is the the worst abuse of government power for political purposes that I have ever seen. 
uh, and I'm sure many of you feel the same way, to stop a president from, well, stop a candidate from becoming a president, and then to end a presidency, to use the Department of Justice and the FBI to corrupt federal law enforcement in that way? That's going to have ramifications that last for years, maybe for decades. The the left still has this obsession, especially the left-wing media, with Watergate. And they're hoping to revisit Watergate upon the Republican Party. That's a, a driving factor behind a lot of this. But I can tell you that I think it's much more likely that in 20 or 30 or 40 years, we will be looking back at the effort to throw a presidential election to the Democrats by a number of senior law enforcement officials in our own federal government who were willing to abuse surveillance powers against completely non-threatening and and non-criminal U.S. citizens like Carter Page and Papadopoulos. I'm not saying they're geniuses, folks. I'm not saying they're heroes, but they didn't need to have agents run against them. They didn't need to have FISA warrants open. That was all pretext. That was all pretext. The more information we get, the worse it looks. You'll notice that nothing exculpatory tends to come out about Strzok and Page and Comey and McCabe. And there's no information that we see that, oh, okay, maybe we were wrong about this one. Maybe it isn't what we thought. The more information we get, the worse this all looks. And what I am being told right now is that as soon as Monday... That's right. As soon as Monday, the president may choose to declassify the Carter Page FISA warrant essentially in full. Uh, And there'll be no more room to hide for the left or saying, oh, it wasn't a dossier. It was the dossier. The FBI was so outrageously partisan and so dishonest that now I want to say the FBI. Again, I'm talking about maybe eight to ten people. There is a cabal. This is we, we are going to find out soon, I think, who the named individuals of the so-called deep state really are. Maybe you want to call it a mini deep state, but it's a deep state nonetheless. We're going to find out their names. We're going to find out what they did, I believe, within the next week or two and as soon as possibly Monday. We're going to find out that that dossier, which was Clinton paid for opposition research, paid for via a cutout, a law firm, so that they wouldn't have to declare it on there. The people that want to lecture us all the time about campaign contributions and campaign finance law seem to have no problem with it. This, at a minimum, the sleaziness of the Clinton campaign using a law firm to farm out their dirty work for them. It's incredibly shady. Uh, but it's Clintonian. So I guess we can't be surprised in the least about it. Um, but I think Monday we will. F- I think Monday is when it happens, folks. I think Monday is when there won't be. I'm, I'm hoping it's. I should say I'm hoping it's Monday. I've heard that that might happen then. But they've been hiding behind all these all these bogus secrecy arguments and saying, "Oh, we can't know this. We can't know that." Uh, the reckoning is coming. It's not here yet, and I don't think that it's going to be something that completely makes all the troubles of the Trump administration go away, they're going to change the storyline. You're going to hear that there were, um, we're going to hear that there were perhaps campaign finance uh, violations involving the inauguration. 
you're going to hear that there was some other form of Russian collusion or something else. Do we have Jim Jordan yesterday, by the way, talking about how this is all just just crap? John, Here's if we have what's that, so frustrating about yeah. the dossier was a big lie. So what they did is they said, this is a big lie. The more people we can get talking about the dossier, the more likely it is they'll believe the lie. So that's why they had this leak strategy to support a document that was the basis for everything. That's the big problem here. They took that document, the dossier, untrue document. They took it to the secret court and didn't tell the court important facts to get a warrant. Didn't tell them who paid for it. Didn't tell him the guy who wrote it, Christopher Steele, had a extreme bias against the president, said he was desperate to stop Trump and didn't tell the court about Orr's involvement, both Bruce and Nellie Orr's involvement in production of the document. Yep. That's where we are, folks. More than a year into this Russia collusion delusion. And it looks worse for the Democrats than other. It look, looks worse for the media that ran with this story. How can, how can CNN ever, ever claim that uh, it's an objective news organization after this? How forget objective? How could it ever claim it's a serious news organization? How could it claim that it's really doing what it's supposed to do after running with this fable, this fairy tale, for over a year? A story that never made sense. Trump is a buffoon who, you know, can't put his shoes on by himself, but oh, he's also running an international conspiracy that with the with with some of the most powerful intelligence officers and agencies in the world on his case have been able to find no evidence of any wrongdoing. He must be a a super spy. I mean, he must be some next level super genius. But, oh, I thought he was a bumbling buffoon and didn't know anything. None of this has ever made sense. It wasn't even a good idea, folks. One thing that's gotten lost in our discussions about this is that if Trump had colluded with Russia in some way, let's let's say it was going to be uh, the, you know, the, he knew about the Hillary emails or something like that, the DNC emails. It's not even an effective strategy. In fact, they all thought it was so ineffective that they didn't care until Hillary lost. They knew the Russians were meddling. They didn't do anything about it because it was nothing. But now they pretend like it was a big something because they're dishonest and they have not gotten past the fact that their their beloved Hillary is not, in fact, president of the United States. So I, I really hope that next week it happens. I, I, I'm, I don't want to get you too excited about it. You never know. Somebody might talk Trump out of it. Somebody may come along with a a rationale for why we, we don't need the American public to know, but I am hearing from people who are connected and who have good sourcing on this that it's probably going to happen Monday. And man, next week is just going to be wild if that's the case. You're going to have so many Democrats running for cover. You're going to have so many uh, libs just completely apoplectic. I mean, they are going to freak out if this actually happens. So that's why I think Trump must do this. Absolutely. Release the FISA application in full on Carter Page. Let us know what they really had other than the dossier. Because once we can prove that it was nothing but the dossier, that also means that all these people, Orr and McCabe and Strzok and Page, all these different people at the FBI were obviously partisan actors. And the actions that they took were well outside the required ethics of their offices. 
This is all I think we're going to find out. So I just want to leave with that because say a prayer this weekend. We, we want, we need the truth on this one. We got to get to the truth on this one. Um, and I, I want this whole nightmare for the country to end of, of this, this pretense that, oh, we're going to find out any day another smoking gun evidence of Russia collusion with Trump. That's, that's a thing that people who are only uh, either liars or delusional could believe at this point. It's just nonsense, utter nonsense. I want to talk to you a bit about uh, the storm and the, the the politics surrounding a previous storm, of course, Hurricane Maria. There's a lot more commentary out there on that. Also, the the disgusting 11th hour hit on Kavanaugh. We've got more information about what this anonymous source for an unverified allegation that is from 1982. And the whole it's just the whole thing is it's so terrible. Democrats, they're a disgrace. Democrats are a party without ethics and without honor. Something we should all remember. Uh, so we'll come back and talk about uh, a little bit about uh, the situation with the hurricane and the, and the debates around Trump and hurricanes right now and how they're trying to shape that narrative. We'll talk Kavanaugh. We'll talk Pompeo, the Nikki Haley hit piece that's based on lies. I've got a, a really inspiring guest joining who's a veteran who lost his sight and his hearing and then founded a successful company uh, that makes delicious treats. We'll talk to them. We'll talk to uh, him and his wife. Uh, and also the Department of Justice is going to call uh, later on the show because they've got a assistant attorney general is going to explain a very important part of DOJ policy because, you know, DOJ likes to hang out in the Freedom Hut sometimes. So that'll happen as well. We'll be right back. Puerto Rico had a number of their own problems before Maria even hit. Uh, they were filing for bankruptcy. They had uh, well, a power grid the, that was in chaos. So that's to, because under the Jones Act, Puerto Rico has has lost $537 million a year. The United States government has pillaged and raped Puerto Rico since what the is, very beginning. What is President Trump's tweets do not inspire confidence. Just imagine, just by the mentioning that there is a storm forming in the Atlantic Ocean. People in Puerto Rico rushed to every store. All those shelves were empty. This has taken an emotional toll on the people of Puerto Rico. The suicide rate continues to climb. And this is the response that we get from our president. It's all Trump's fault, folks. That's what they want you to believe. It's all, it's all Trump's fault. Uh, you know, I think it's also interesting that the U.S. has has pillaged and raped Puerto Rico since the beginning. So, if if that's the case, why is so so they want statehood even though the U.S. has been terrible to Puerto Rico? I, I just I need someone to explain that one to me. Um, and then to say that Trump is is further traumatizing the island. I mean, look, he's fighting back against as I discussed with you yesterday a way of counting casualties from a weather event that's new. Not a coincidence it's being used to uh, hurt Trump, but everyone's getting it on this now. It's not an accident that we're talking about Maria while Florence is going on. So that makes it easier for them to create the perception that anything that bad that occurs during this storm that the federal government has been digging in for for days or weeks, maybe now, I don't know, and and trying to prepare for and doing everything they can. Uh, it's going to be blamed on Trump. That's the plan. And that's the plan, for example, for Sheila Jackson Lee as well. She said this about Puerto Rico. Play 17. 
As we stand here today in the backdrop of media reports, our friends and neighbors uh, in uh, the southeast region are not only being plummeted, but they are and plummeted, they are being rescued. Uh, they are desperate. Uh, they're calling out uh, for relief. And if there ever is a time for the federal government uh, to Wait, can stand I pause it for, for one second? Just, just pause it for a second. I says, Producer Mike, can we, do a, can we do a fact check? So I know she said they've been plummeted, which kind of sounds like a word, but I don't think that's really what I, I think she meant to say something else. But then I think she wanted to go with uh, pummeled. But then she said something like plum, plum. She, she had some other. Was the other thing a word or no? What was the other thing she said? Yeah, the jury's still out on whether they were actually words or not. Um, I'm not sure. I'm yeah. not sure they were words. I'm kind of wondering what that was. Maybe she was making up her new words. I just think Plumble. she couldn't wait to get to the part where she she called Trump incompetent, so she just like got all excited and you know. Yeah, that's right. That's why she was. You know, she wanted to plummel plummel him. <laughs> yes. uh, play play it, uh, uh, John. The rest. Or. And disaster. And so it saddens me today to come and to acknowledge uh, that the present administration uh, is more than insensitive. It is incompetent. Incompetent. That's as Mike's right. That is, she just wanted to rush to say that as quickly as possible. That's really what this is all about. Bashing Trump. It's not about saving lives. It's not about Puerto Rico death toll and how people are so sad about it. The media is so focused on this because it's an opportunity to return to familiar tactics of the past. Remember, Watergate, get a big investigation going, end of presidency. Katrina, say that a president was disconnected and terrible and the federal government response was racist and everything else and take down a Republican president with that. I mean, they're, they're returning to the greatest hits of the Democrat left here as a, as a political weapon that's that's what they're doing they're going with all the old stuff you know they're certainly not making a case the american people about being better stewards of our government being better better uh stewards of the economy you know it's not none of that there's none of that stuff going on it's all just you know trump is basically hitler he's like basically worse than hitler that's what most of the uh, snowflake left is saying these days so and they've been saying all along i guess it's not going to change uh speaking of the left and how they're out of their minds kavanaugh they made this terrible accusation about him. I want to dig into it. Uh, the short version is they are completely shameless. But I'll tell you why. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions. Blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters. Rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids. And school children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists would be censured at the whim of government. There you have exactly the kind of character assassination that the Democrats have now made a, a pretty common reality now of, of these hearings. Uh, that was Ted Kennedy talking about Judge Bork. Now we have the effort to destroy Kavanaugh at the very last moment. Uh, and folks, uh, this is, is grotesque, okay? They are saying, 
This is this is from Diane Feinstein, a sitting U.S. senator. That the claim is that a woman says that when she was a minor and Kavanaugh was a minor, so they're teenagers. They're like fifteen or sixteen years old, fifteen years old maybe. That he tried to hold her in a room, and a friend tried to hold her in a room, and he tried to like you know get on top of her or something, but she managed to get away. And she won't come forward with her name. We're not allowed to know her name. In fact, Feinstein redacted her name from this letter, which was passed to Feinstein before she passed along the FBI. The FBI is not even opening investigation. They're just like, all right, we'll add this into his background file. Kavanaugh's passed five background checks. And I got to tell you, you know, it's it's amazing to see some 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 just disgusting idiots in the media who think that, yeah, they've really accomplished something here. You know, yeah, yeah, Kavanaugh. He, see, I always knew Kavanaugh was dirty. Now we finally got him. It's like, no, no, that's not what's happened here. That is not a reflection of what has gone on. Kavanaugh is not dirty. Kavanaugh did not do anything wrong. But they just are so desperate to believe it that they will leap on this issue and act like, yeah, sure, that's right. Kavanaugh's a bad guy. Because of a an unsourced, unvetted allegation that I'm also going to put this out there for what is the allegation even really? This woman who says that you know she was disturbed by this, she never never like told anybody about it. Nothing happened to her. So the allegation is that maybe that she thought that there was an alleged sexual like a, 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 a attempted sexual assault, but she wasn't assaulted. So how does she? I mean. You know, unless we have real specifics here, was was Kavanaugh like just being kind of a stupid teenager and playing a joke on her for a second and closed the door and like grabbed her arm or something? I mean, did she misread the situation? I mean, we don't know. We don't know anything. We don't know anything. Other than a sitting U.S. senator has now made this a part of the record of Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. And given this to the FBI from the look at, by the way, it could never be. There's nothing. People say that people are saying that it's past the statute of limitations. That's a that's a, a non sequitur. There's nothing to prosecute. If this had happened a week ago, based on the facts that we have, you couldn't prosecute anything. If this had happened a week ago, you couldn't even take any disciplinary action against them if you were a, a school or if you nothing happened. I mean, this woman, you know, what do, do we get to know about her? Does she have, you know, does she suffer from, you know, a, a severe mental health issue? I mean, we, we don't know anything. But, oh, no, you know, this was, this was the last effort. To, really just, this is Feinstein and some others trying to show their psychotic left-wing base that they would do anything. They would pull any dirty trick there is nothing too low nothing too deep in the gutter when it comes to trying to oppose Kavanaugh uh, this this is a disgrace you had all these women I think 60, 65 women signed a letter uh, signed a, a letter and the media was running around with this with this lie that they must have known this was coming all along and that's why they had these 65 women who signed a letter, all attesting to Brett Kavanaugh's tremendous character, how he, how he helped women advance their careers. He never sexually harassed any women. This guy is as good as it gets. 
And 65 women were like, nothing but a gentleman, nothing but a mentor, family man, great dad, great husband. And the media just spread this lie around today of, oh, well, they must have been preparing for this because they must have known this is coming. No, actually, the women who signed this said, no, we just signed the last 24 hours. But it was that easy to get 65 of us together because this is a lie. I'm not saying that I'm not willing to uh, believe this this allegation based on the the uh, you know the, the flimsy details. I'm saying I don't believe it. I'm actively saying I think this is a lie. Yeah, that's right. I'm not saying oh well I'm not really sure. No no, based on what I've been told so far, there's a lie. This person's a liar. Probably has a problem. You know, wants to be maybe in her own mind be some kind of hero for stopping Kavanaugh. I mean, I've talked to women who think that they're saving millions of lives if they stop Kavanaugh's nomination. So if you thought you were saving millions of lives, what would you not do? But no, I don't I don't even think that this is about we're not we're not at a place where we can believe the quote victim. I think this is this is false. Um, you could say this is a, this is a, a, a case of fake news, kind of like Nikki Haley fake the Nikki Haley fake news that we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Uh, but there, that this is why I will not take lectures from Democrats and the left about how Trump has coarsened politics. Trump is so nasty and mean, all this other stuff. They have no decency. They have no shame. There's nothing that I can put beyond Democrats when they think that their power is on the line. And this whole Kavanaugh nomination has been a perfect example of that. I don't care what Trump did with with Stormy Daniels or didn't do with Stormy Daniels. I, I flatly do not care. Because in their own way, the Democrats, in many cases, are every bit as unethical as any kind of marital infidelity. They're just doing other things. They're ruining people's lives. They're locking people up in prison on trumped-up charges or pretending that the uh, investigations they're running are legitimate. I mean, it's, it, they're a disgrace. And what they've done to Kavanaugh is the worst thing that I've seen in quite some time. Why hasn't the money been made available to construct the wall? Well, maybe it's because the wall is a complete indecency. Uh, it's ineffective. Uh, it is not the appropriate way uh, to, uh, uh, if you ever went to uh, the border, you would see that it's a community with a border going through it. A community with a border going through it. That sounds a lot like Nancy Pelosi, who hopes to be the next speaker of the House of Representatives and therefore the third in line for the U.S. presidency. Oh, yeah. She seems to think there's really no difference between the U.S. and Mexico. It's a, it's America and Mexico. They're just one community with a, with a line through them, but the line doesn't really matter. This is immigration extremism, folks. I mean, what else could what else could we call it? How else could we refer to this other than to say, yeah, you know what? There there is a a degree of of either just extreme cynicism and dishonesty here, or or delusion dare I say, or a case where there's certainly some uh, some disconnect from the reality. But you know, Nancy Pelosi lives in California. Obviously, the immigration issue there is huge. And California is the most pro-illegal state, although New York's probably pretty close, pro-illegal state there is in the country because it is now a, a political reality that you have to be pro-legal immigration in California or else you can't have elected office. But th- this is it. I, I don't mean to be... The guy beating a dead horse here, but we we either make a stand now on the wall or it's it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. I know people say, oh, no, Buck, you're giving up too soon. Mm -mm. 
if it, unless Trump is just going to say we're going to do this through the military and it's not going to be a, a standard congressional appropriation of any kind. That's I, I suppose that's possible, too. But, you know, Pelosi is somebody who we really should pay. And that's why it's great for the Republican base whenever she comes out and speaks, because when you hear what Pelosi is for, when you hear what Pelosi is, uh, what she really thinks on issues like the border, then you realize, wow, the Democrats are actually kind of crazy. And that counteracts all this anti-Trump propaganda you hear where people say, oh, we've got to have, you know, the adults have got to be back in charge. Where are the adults? I want the adults. Oh, all that stuff. Mm-mm. That's that is not an accurate take on things. Uh, Pelosi is opposed to a border wall the same way that a lot of Democrats are opposed to it, saying it's she said it's an indecency, which I thought was interesting. So is the border wall in her home state of California in San Diego sector? Is that an indecency? Because people who work on the border think that it's actually a really effective means of preventing illegal immigration. And with it, the human smuggling that has a tremendous cost of misery on people and and all the money that goes to the cartels and the human smuggling and also the drug smuggling into this country you know i've realized one of the reasons and i I think it might be the primary reason in fact i would go as far as to say i believe it is the primary reason that it took so long for the opioid epidemic to really become a national news story that people were forced to pay attention to in the news media is that they were concerned that the more, you know, because anyone who does any research on this finds out that it's a heroin and illegal fentanyl epidemic, and that stuff's coming across the border in huge numbers. And so essentially our, our the cartels that have way too much power and control in our southern neighbor, Mexico, are poisoning tens of thousands of Americans. They're murdering tens of thousands of people. When you understand how addictive these drugs are that are coming across the southern border and how lethal they can be, that to say murder is not an overstatement at all. That's what's going on here. I mean, these people are responsible. These cartel members are responsible for the deaths of people in very difficult circumstances and in huge numbers. 73,000? That's, that's an enormous death count for one year in this country. So, you know, I just, the Pelosi thing, she just really drives me up a wall. Oh, look what I just did there. I didn't mean to say that. And there's something else we, we wanted to just bring your attention to for a moment. I don't like political dynasties, and I know that, you know, there's the Bush, Republicans do it too. And I think there's going to be another dynasty with the Republican Party, but I won't get into that right now. I don't like dynasties. I don't believe that leadership skills and and political acumen are inherited traits. I do not believe that. And I think that it really is just an extension of celebrity culture. In some ways, it's the earliest celebrity culture because even before people really knew in a national way about you know Hollywood figures, they knew the famous political last names, you know, thing like Rockefeller or you know whomever, right? Um, so that's been around Roosevelt or you know they, I mean think of a of a big, I guess Rockefeller would be more. That would be later on. But you know what I mean. Famous last names. Kennedys. Uh, I don't like that stuff. But we're going to be forced, or the, the media, rather, is going to try to force us to pretend that there's anything to be admired or respected about uh, Chelsea Clinton, who, from everyone that I've heard that's interacted with her, she's very entitled, she's very bratty, 
and you know she's spoiled. She's never had to have a real job job, but wants to lecture other people about who who do have to have real jobs about how they should do them, and and that's annoying enough. But then this gets even. You know, there are my limits before I, I, I feel like nasty words about somebody are, are, if not required, certainly fair game. I want you to hear what Chelsea Clinton had to say uh, earlier today on the topic of abortion. Play clip 12. I look at my children and I, and I, you know, to quote Jim Kim, you know, optimism is a moral choice, right? Every day I make the moral choice to be optimistic that my mm-hmm. efforts and my energies um, particularly when I am fortunate enough to be in partnership kind of with, with fellow travelers, um, hopefully will make a difference yeah. to even more women confronted uh, pre-Roe and how many women died and how many uh, more women were maimed because of unsafe uh, abortion practices. You know, we just can't go back to right. that. Like that's uh, unconscionable to me. Um, and also, and I'm sure that this will unleash uh, another wave of hate in my direction, but as a deeply religious person, it's also unchristian mm-hmm. to me. Right. Now, Chelsea Clinton is allowed to refer to herself as a deeply religious person, and I suppose I'm not supposed to laugh. Although, from what I can tell, n- none of her policies comport with any uh, traditional Christian beliefs. I'm not I'm not sure of what, you know, if if Christianity and this is a this is a bigger problem. Maybe this is a bigger discussion we should have. It feels more and more like Christianity has been hijacked by the progressive left to just be a kind of Marxism with with some with some hymnals. Uh, it is it is feel goodism. It's not actually that there are eternal truths and eternal laws of what is righteous and what is just and what our obligations are as children of God, it's it's that, you know, it's really just let's all gather together, kumbaya, whatever you like, do it. It's all about you do you. I don't want to judge. I'm not your judge. I want to talk about helping the poor, but not really doing anything to help the poor. You know, there, there is this social justice Christianity that has been gaining steam. I've seen more and more in recent years, and I, I find it really, you know, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to follow in, in Christ's path, you know, actually... I think the first step in that would be not thinking that murdering for convenience is a an acceptable uh, point of view. And yet Chelsea Clinton seems to think that that is the case, that it would be unchristian to eliminate abortion. I mean, that is such a perversion of what Christianity is. I mean, if Christianity is not a celebration of and is not, an, and not a creed meant to protect life, then it is nothing. So that's how backwards, in my mind, somebody like Chelsea Clinton has being a Christian of, of any kind. Um, but I, I just, I think the Clintons are. This is why I, I, you know, I'll take, I'll take the heat all day from CNN, old Trump and this and Stormy Daniels and all these places. You know, I'll, you know, they, they don't, they don't change my mind one bit because not only is Trump actually doing a good job as president, and it's a job, all right. It's not, he's not my moral leader. Trump is not my priest, okay? He's not my my deacon. He's not my rabbi. He's not my imam, any of those things. Well, that would be interesting. Uh, Trump is elected to be the chief executive of the United States government, and he's doing a good job with that. So when you add to that, though, 
that a lot of these people that are wagging the finger in my face about, oh, Trump, and he's so bad, and he does this, and he does that, are people that think that the Clintons are somehow more ethically palatable. I mean, that's, that is preposterous. That's like, I couldn't not laugh in people's faces for saying that, but that's 90% of the media feels that way. 99% of the media feels that way. Background investigations are a sensitive business, folks. As we know, they can be make or break for people getting a job or keeping the job they've got. You want somebody involved in this that you can trust, who's going to get you answers right away, and who's going to be efficient in the whole process. That's Global Verification Network. Global Verification Network is a dual-certified, veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company. It's based out of Chicago, wherever you are across the country. Whether you're a small startup company all the way up to a Fortune 100 company, Global Verification can handle all the background investigations you need for all of your employees, okay? So this is the company you want to go to. I know the CEO personally. He's a great guy. He's a veteran. He's trustworthy. This is where you should be giving your background investigation and vetting business. Go to mygvn.com. Again, mygvn.com. When you reach out, tell them Buck Sexton sent you to Global Verification Network. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One make, make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show team. You know, this is a... Uh, uh, <laughs> This is something that I'm, I'm never going to let go. We keep getting told that Trump is so mean to the media, right? We, we are told that that Trump is this, this mean, nasty guy when it comes to the media and that the media is all sad and they're even scared and because Trump, big, bad, mean Trump says these things to them and he's undermining the First Amendment, he's undermining democracy and all this stuff. And, and then it's not whether you think anything else that they're saying is true. They're also suggesting it's not provoked, that there's no real basis for this. You know, that that Trump's animus, that his disdain for the mainstream media does not come from a place of anything other than, you know, they're trying to speak truth to power, all that crap. Okay. Meanwhile, every time there's a major reporting error, that they have to completely walk back. It's one that is bashing Trump. And they're only ones that bash Trump, but they have to walk back. Right? So, you know, you start to see the pattern speaks for itself. They never have to walk back stories about Trump that are good. And they also never had to walk back the same kinds of stories or even retract entirely the same kinds of stories about Obama administration officials, but with Trump or any of Trump's people or anyone around him, very damaging stuff will be written, and then you'll find out, oh, wait, that wasn't true at all. You know, that, that, that's just completely made up. It, it's, a, it's a fabrication. And we have the latest in this with uh, the Nikki Haley situation. Now, if you, if you are wondering why are they going after Nikki Haley... Oh, I don't have the, I want the original, darn it, I want the original version of the piece. They, they've updated it now. But they, uh, they had wrote this whole hit piece saying that Nikki Haley spent, 
that 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 her view is priceless and that she had spent uh 50 what is it 52,701 dollars on curtains customized and mechanized curtains for the huge windows of the official residence of the US ambassador to the United Nations and this the whole point of the of the piece folks was oh look at Nikki Haley she's this spendthrift who's running around being uh, like a little Marie Antoinette with her, oh, let them eat cake, I'm going to buy $50,000 window treatments. And they they ran this story, and then they also talked about how her her penthouse, it's a, it's a full-floor penthouse where she lives, is 6,000 square feet and was costing $58,000 a month in rent. And that Nikki Haley is the first person to live in this residence. And so this, the whole thing was that this was going to be Scott Pruitt all over again. This is, oh my gosh, look at Nikki Haley. She's spending all this money. She's so out of touch with what's really going on in America that she would spend all this money on windows or on curtains for windows or whatever, mechanized curtains. And the, the, the point of the piece, the piece existed to slam Nikki Haley. That's what this was about. In fact, David Hogg, who now is is apparently held up as an expert on everything, even though he's an expert in absolutely nothing. Uh, but David Hogg tweeted out the following. Uh, Dear Nikki Haley, there are starving. I'm sorry, David Hogg retweeted this tweet, but he shared this with all of his followers. There are starving children in America every day. And you have the audacity to misappropriate thousands of tax dollars for your own lavish lifestyle. Resign immediately. Sincerely, America. Folks, um, there's a pretty big problem with this. Remember, this is a New York Times piece. This is not, I'm not going to some, you know, this isn't uh, the Daily Coast or the Nation or HuffPo or just some steamy pile of liberal liberal crap. This is a a... Well, in some ways, it's the biggest, steamiest pile of liberal crap, but it's the New York Times. It's a supposedly reputable, the most reputable newspaper, if you believe liberals. And they published this, and this was their, this is really their biggest story today. I mean, this is the big thing that they were sinking their teeth into. And a little problem with it. Anyone guess the problem is with the story before I tell you? Just in case you don't already know. If those of you who know, don't yell out the answer. Nikki Haley didn't buy these curtains, folks. Uh oh, wait a minute. Guess who did? Samantha Power, the former UN ambassador, uh, US ambassador to the United Nations, under, you guessed it, the Obama administration. She was the one who approved these. It was under her time in office that the, uh, that the spending decision was made. And so now the New York Times has had to, quote, append. This editor's note, an earlier version of this article and headline created an unfair impression about who was responsible for the purchase in question. While Nikki Haley is the current ambassador to the United Nations, the decision on leasing the ambassador's residence and purchasing the curtains was made during the Obama administration. The article should not have focused on Ms. Haley, nor should a picture of her have been used. The article and headline have now been edited to reflect those concerns and the picture has been removed. 
So there's no question about this, folks. They got New York Times big time, got caught with their hand in the cookie jar, and and now they don't even have the 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 real decency. I mean, people are saying, oh, look at them. They walked it back. No, 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 no. This is another one of these times where the liberal media doesn't get to just, just post a little correction. They got caught. All right, they got they got jammed. Jammed. And they should really do a retraction because the premise, the, the premise and purpose of this story was to slam a senior Trump administration official and a female Republican, by the way, who's also a minority, who also some talk about as a possible future vice president, maybe even presidential contender. So they wanted to slam her. The story without Nikki Haley is not a story the New York Times would have ever told. And if they say otherwise, they're lying. Now the story is just, oh, expensive shades were bought by the last U.S. ambassador to the United States. Who cares, right? Yeah, so it was, it was Samantha Power. I mean, they're not going to they're not going to dig into that, dive into that. No way. But they won't do the only thing that's that would be, I wouldn't even say it's honorable, the only thing that honor requires here, which is a full retraction of the story, it should be gone. But you know why they won't do it, folks? Because that would be admitting that the whole thing was just a giant cluster, that the whole thing was wrongheaded, wrong information, and that there was real journalistic malpractice at the heart of this. I mean, that's something that you really, that's something that has to get some focus here. That there was no honest effort to just tell a story here. This was, let's let's get Nikki Haley. Let's find a way to slam Nikki Haley. And in the process, as the, as the kids would say these days, the liberals self-owned at the New York Times. There was self-ownage by liberals. Uh, and and but this is but they do this all the time. This is what keeps happening. When you when you combine an ideological ferocity against Trump at all these newspapers and all these editorial boards with a decision making process that will always privilege the possibility of striking a major blow against the enemy above journalistic standards. This is what you're going to get. They hate Trump and they would rather take risks that might damage Trump than protect their credibility. If it's a close call, I'm not saying they're going to totally fabricate stories. I'm not saying they're going to make it all up, but they will do things like this. And it's only possible they would make such a glaring and pathetic error because Trump is involved. Or in this sense, you know, Nikki Haley is being used as a proxy for getting a Trump. They should be embarrassed. They won't be embarrassed. They should retract the story. They won't retract the story. Trump derangement syndrome is real. But let's talk about John Kerry being a stealth secretary of state. Speaking of UN and ambassadors and all that stuff, it's a decent transition. Stay with me. What Secretary Kerry has done is unseemly and unprecedented. This is a former secretary of state engaged with the world's largest state sponsor of terror. And according to him, right, I don't, you don't have to take my word for it, he, these are his answers, he was, he was talking to them, he was telling them to wait out this administration. I, I, it, you, you can't find precedent for this in U.S. history, and um, Secretary, ought not to, Secretary Kerry ought not to engage 
in that kind of behavior. It's inconsistent with what the foreign policy of the United States is, as directed by this president, and it is beyond inappropriate. I think you, I think you understand what I wish it is that former secretaries of state, all of them, from either political party, ought not to be engaged in. Actively undermining U.S. policy, actively undermining U.S. policy, as a former Secretary of State, is literally unheard of. Secretary of State Pompeo, sounding a lot like yours truly on this one, folks. It's because it's the truth. Because that's what's really going on here. I mean that John Kerry is not just meddling, but remember, folks, he's coaching the other side. And the other side just happens to be one of the worst, most odious regimes on planet Earth. Why is he helping them? The policy of the Trump administration right now is to extract uh, and and to create a difficult situation to extract you know monetary damages via economic sanctions and to punish the Iranian regime. That's what U.S. policy is right now. And it sounds like what John Kerry is telling them is, well, don't worry about this one. You know, we'll make sure that we get back on track. Just just wait this out. Don't make any big concessions. What if the concessions were that they would give uh, they, they would actually give up their nuclear program, John Kerry? They'd say, you know what? Fine. We'll actually allow you to we'll allow you to do full inspections and we'll destroy it. We'll dismantle it. Now, I know maybe that's not likely, but the point is John Kerry doesn't really know. He doesn't know what's possible. He's not involved anymore. He doesn't have access. But there's a mentality that's on display here. And it's a very widespread one one among Democrats these days. And it is that President Trump is not really the president. That's that's what this all comes down to, folks, is that there's no they feel no need to show any basic deference or respect to the commander in chief because they have really convinced themselves through all this Russia collusion nonsense and all this stuff. They've really convinced themselves that they are not bound by any of those rules of civility or decency or or political unity because they don't think that Trump is really the president. Not my president. Not my president. I mean, that's that's what we're up against here on the other side, which is why they have no problem just acting like he's not the president because they don't believe he is. They, they really do, they really don't think he is. They think that he is illegitimate. He is a pretender to the crown, so to speak. And that's why John Kerry uh, going around and doing this is, I think, going to go over. It does go over so well with Democrats because they think, like, yeah, that's right. He's the shadow secretary of state. John Kerry is the shadow secretary of state. And then if you want to get into somebody else who is a pretender to the crown, so to speak, somebody else who seems to have stepped into the role of, well, I'm going to act like I'm still the person that everyone has to listen to. We have none other than Obama, who weighs in on on everything these days, uh, talking then, about, yep, talking about Iran. Go ahead, play it. And Come then we, we took out bin Laden, and, and, and we down, wound down the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we got Iran to hold its nuclear program, but when people watch the news, they still see that the world is full of serious threats. And so people are stressed and they're anxious. Oh, Obama. I don't think he's going to be able to recapture the old, the old magic of uh, 
those those speeches back when he was president. But he's he's trying. Look, maybe he's going to be effective for the Democrats in the midterms. I don't know. I don't think so. But certainly more effective than Hillary. Why? Uh, would definitely be more effective than Hillary. But he said a couple things here. When he says that you know we we got Bin Laden, I think it's interesting. I saw, um, I saw you know uh, O'Neill. Rob O'Neill, who is the guy who shot Bin Laden, and I know him a little bit from from doing hits at Fox, and you know we've uh, we've hung out a couple times in the past, and he's a really he's a great guy. I saw on Twitter, Mike, did you see this? Some guy, Rob, said something like, you know, said something critical of of Obama, uh, and and when it came to radical Islam and not being willing to say it, and some random person on Twitter responded to Rob, um, actually, President Obama killed Bin Laden, so like, why don't you shut up? (laughs) <laughs> and Rob got to respond, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> uh, the guy who actually killed Bin Laden. But uh, he didn't say that. That was implied. But I thought that was kind of... What, what are the chances, folks? You know, what are the chances you pick a fight with somebody and you're like, yeah, Obama killed Osama. And and then the person who actually literally pulled the trigger and killed Osama Bin Laden is like, well, I'm the one you're arguing with. That's the thing that I saw happening on Twitter. Uh, but Obama says here that that they got Iran to halt its nuclear program. He he still digs in on this as, as though that's a, uh, a a wise position on on what happened with Iran. When the reality is that halting their nuclear program just meant that it was ready to go. You know, if you want to disarm somebody and they just say, "Okay, I'm not going to give you my weapon, but I'm going to keep it in my house, and whenever I want it, I can get to it." But let's pretend like that's me being disarmed. That's not a smart policy. That's kind of what they did with Iran. And the fact that the Iranians are seeing so much pressure on their economy and they have really no answer to that right now, I think really worries uh, the John Kerry's and the and the Obamas of the world because what what their whole foreign policy legacy crumbles if Trump and Pompeo and others in this administration are successful in getting not just a, a an Iran that's on a path to true denuclearization, but even beyond that, being a more stable player in the region that's not supporting terrorism and militias and all this stuff. I mean, that's a long ways away, and maybe we'll never get there. But if they just get a, if Trump and Pompeo just get a better deal than what Obama was able to get, that will look bad for Obama's foreign policy legacy, and there are a lot of people who are very sensitive about that. So, But I'm glad Pompeo called out Kerry, because what Kerry's doing is really beyond the pale. It's just complete garbage. And Kerry is a narcissist. He really he is. Um, and I'm glad there are people out there that will take him to task. I've always been, you know this, I, I wrote uh, an article for TheHill.com in support of Pompeo, just saying, look, this guy is great, okay? This guy is really, he's going to be one of the standouts for the Trump cabinet i think he's going to do an excellent job and he's somebody that really understands trump but also gets the other the other piece of how the bureaucracies function and how to make things work uh so i think pompeo is going to be a real bright spot for the administration continue to be one our team we've got big hour three coming up here we've got the uh, the department of justice going to be calling in that's right doj we're gonna have an assistant attorney general when we want to ask a legal question, folks, what do we do? We just get the DOJ to call in, talk to us here on the show. That's how we roll, because we know people. It's our man Jeff Sessions making things happen. I, we don't want to. We don't want to brag. We don't want to brag, but you know, we have a little, uh, little, little bro fest with our man Jeff Sessions, who happens to be the Attorney General of the United States government. NBD, no big deal. That's coming up.
in hour three. Stay with me. We must also cleanse our American soul of its white male privilege, its voracious greed, and its enforced ignorance that has made a population of semi-literate and unaware people. Michael Moore there, folks, saying a lot of dumb things, as he tends to do, saying we must cleanse our American soul of its white male privilege. How does he, how does he recommend we do that? You know, that, that's, I, I want to know, how do I get to come clean from my white male privilege? How would I, if I was, if I wanted to, is the only way to do it to hector other white males about their privilege? Is, is that the way to do my penance? Let's think about this in, in, in terms of, of basic ethics for a moment. Why am I held responsible for my gender and skin color in a moral fashion, meaning why do I have a moral obligation to act a certain way or, or do a certain thing based upon my skin color? I, I don't understand that. I either have a moral obligation as a person or I don't. But I cannot be responsible for what other people who are of my race or of my gender have done in the past. The moment you do that, you've actually erased the foundation of what is moral action and, and the, the basics of or the basis for ethics. I mean, it's either your, th- it's either what you do and who you are, or it's just all one big fight about co- collectives and groups and history. And you know, there really, there really is no morality anymore if morality is only judged by groups, and if history can judge the morality of, or can be used to judge the morality of individuals today. So I just flatly reject this, but you know Michael Moore is out there and, and making a buffoon of himself because Fahrenheit eleven nine is out now, right? John, have you do you know about this? I've I vaguely heard something about it. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm not going to go see it either, but party feels like I have to go see it because uh, I need to be able to rip it apart here on the show. But I, I feel I don't want to give them you know any money to this project, so that's always something that I. I struggle with in these kind of situations. Oh, I did buy the uh, Woodward book, folks. Um, Fifty pages into it, or so, I'd say maybe, maybe you know something like that. So, uh, it, it's a pretty good read. I wish there was a real way to know how much of it is accurate and how much of it is fabrication, but uh, it is a pretty. It does make for a pretty quick read. So there's that. Uh, but that's a book that you know, in my business, you kind of have to read. You don't really have a choice. I don't think that Fahrenheit eleven nine is uh is in that category but it's certainly um it's certainly a movie that a lot of folks on the left are going to be talking about i don't even know you know what i just assume it's like trump is hitler basically but i don't even know what the what the i'm, I'm assuming the premise is like russia collusion yeah fahrenheit 11 9 michael moore blast trump yeah it's an anti-trump movie yeah it's an anti-trump movie okay so, you know, that's not really not really anything surprising there. It's about the presidential election, the presidency of Donald Trump. Um, the documentary was originally, according to Wikipedia here, intended to be funded in part by Harvey Weinstein and Bob Weinstein before their abuse allegations emerged. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it just had its, its... The distributor describes the document as a provocative and comedic look at the times in which we live. Okay, yeah, Annie, Annie Trump. It's, it's going to be Michael Moore... A very oh here's the cover, 
Fahrenheit 11.9, Trump's in the cover. Tyrant, liar, racist, a hole in one. Um, yeah, it's just a trash Trump documentary. So I, I will not see this because I already know. I already know all the arguments. And I know that Michael Moore is a propagandist. Michael Moore doesn't make documentaries. Very important, folks. Michael Moore makes propaganda films. He isn't documenting anything. He is creating a narrative loosely based in events and facts that caters to a very left-wing, very aggressive, progressive sensibility. That's what Michael Moore does. So I have no interest particularly in, in seeing his movie. Um, but this kind of social agitation that you see, this this from these uh, left-wing quasi-Marxist provocateurs can be very damaging. And I would note that right now, because things are so good in this country, I think we have a, despite all the stuff they say about Trump, things are very good in this country. I think that there's a, a tendency to dismiss these, the Michael Moores of the world as losers, as cranks, as people that we don't have to spend any time thinking about or focusing on. But uh, if we have a major financial downturn, then I think we will be in a bad spot. Then we will be in a place where the Ocasio-Cortezes and the Bernie Sanders, and the Michael Moores, because people will have this perception that capitalism has failed them. Uh, and we don't think in terms of long trends. Whenever we're upset about something, we think about the immediate, the now, the and, and, and who is promising to fix things now. And that's where I think you get into trouble with, with the Michael Moore mentality in this country. If it spreads far enough, if enough people believe in this crap, then uh, we could have some real, some, well, I'll just say it. I mean, that's how revolutions are born, folks. It's generally when, when people's expectations are not met and they are fearful in a, in a certain period of time. Uh, but envy is a, a central premise of the uh, Democrat Party. I mean, this whole notion of privilege and power, Obama is actually talking about it, too. This is this is now at the core of progressive speak, if you will. If you want to be a progressive, you've got to talk about privilege and you've got to, got to talk about power structures. Uh, and Obama is in that plays that role too. play a play clip 18 or eight, eight. Each time we move in the direction of greater freedom and greater prosperity for all people, the status quo pushes back. The powerful and the privileged oftentimes work to keep us divided, work to make us angry and cynical because that helps them hold on to their power and privilege. I want to know who is he talking about? If I was trying to think of somebody who was powerful and privileged in American society right now, it would be tough to come up with somebody more so than Barack Obama. Incredibly privileged, very, very powerful, incredibly wealthy, as connected as any person in the United States, really. And he's railing against the powerful and the privileged. I mean, he surrounds himself with incredibly wealthy people. He surrounds himself with those who are among the most elite in American society. So in what way is he a, a tribune of the people here? In what way does Obama, to kind of borrow from ancient Rome, what, what does he, he represent the, you know, the, the plebs, the hoi polloi, the, the average folk? Uh, he talks about a lot of envy and, and he goes into this class warfare mode but Obama doesn't strike me as somebody who's 
got the uh, what, what people call the, the, the common touch when it comes to dealing with his constituents. Obama doesn't strike me as somebody at all who really understands what it is to be one of the uh, one of the struggling Americans that he speaks so much about. Um, but he's really quite shameless, even now that he's never going to run for political office again, in pretending that he cares so much and also just creating this this rhetorical enemy of the powerful and the privileged. Who is he talking about? And in terms of dividing people, I think it is hard to find a president uh, in, in our recent history who was more divisive in so many ways than Barack Obama was. But I guess this is the fundamental disconnect between left and right these days. Hey, team, you know, I like to bring people on the show that have uh, inspiring personal stories, uh, people who have served this country in tremendous ways and now continue to serve in their communities and and are involved in entrepreneurship and and being uh, creative with the talents that they have to try to, to do even more than anybody could have imagined. We have with us now Aaron and Michaela Hale. Now, uh, Aaron and, and Michaela have a, a company, EOD Fudge, which I'll tell you about. Uh, first, I want to say t- welcome to both Aaron and Michaela. Thank you for joining us on the show. Hey, thanks for having us. Hey, Buck. Thanks for having us on. Uh, Aaron, if you would just first would, tell me a bit about your story. Where do you come to us from and, and your, your service in, in, uh, in the Navy and the Army? Absolutely. I'm uh, originally from Akron, Ohio, but uh, I joined the Navy in 99, was a Navy cook for a few years, about eight. Then I decided to jump ship and went Army Bomb Squad. The war, both wars were in full swing, and I just wanted to play uh, a more direct role. And when I learned about the military's bomb squad, EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal, I knew that's a way I could uh, play a larger role and save lives at the same time. So uh, I did that for a few years until uh, in 2011, I was uh, just off of a two-week R&R, uh, and I was eight months into uh, my, my third uh, deployment to Afghanistan when a, an IED that uh, I had, hadn't yet been detected detonated while I was, I was working on another. And it took my eyes, uh, blew up my eardrums, cracked my skull, and I was leaking spinal fluid right out my nose. So I was medevaced out of uh, Kandahar, and in 48 hours I was at Walter Reed just learning how to be uh, a blind man. And uh, in the, the, the following years, I did just that. I, I learned to be a father, um, learned to be a soldier, I, uh, all over again, uh, without the, the use of eyes, I um, just uh, I carried on. In fact, I was uh, uh, began running marathons, climbing mountains, whitewater kayaking, doing whatever I could to not become one of those twenty-two we lose each day and sit, be sitting on the, the the couch popping pills and feeling sorry for myself. However, in 2015, right after a great week-long first date with my now wife, Michaela, I came down with bacterial meningitis. And again, I was right back in the hospital. This time, between the meningitis and the heavy doses of uh, 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 antibiotics, I lost what was left of my hearing 
leaving me completely deaf and completely blind. And I even lost my uh, vestibular balance, the inner ear sense of balance. And for for months, I was just trapped in my body. Uh, That's with astonishing, Aaron. I mean, and that by the way, that was just that was just the bacterial meningitis was just bad luck. It had nothing to do with the the IED uh, wounds or anything like that. Is that correct? Well, so they they have a theory that the original crack in Aaron's skull um, reopened again, and it created a bacterial infection that ended up becoming meningitis. So um, oh, wow. they did his meningitis to the original bomb blast four years prior. Okay, so there is so there is a connection. So so Aaron, when you were going through this, uh, and as you said, you've lost your sight, you've lost your hearing. Um, you once again decided not to just feel sorry for yourself or I mean, which quite honestly, I mean, overcoming those trials and tribulations you're put through seems almost almost superhuman to a lot of us who are listening. But uh, you went on to to train for marathons. And I mean, tell us some of the things you did before you got to EOD fudge. Well, uh, I uh, like, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. I didn't want to feel sorry for myself and I'm not really programmed that way anyways. Uh, in the military, especially in EOD, we're taught to to use the the tools we have on hand to do the best job we can. You know, uh, uh, EOD teams are given shipping containers full of tools, but then when you get your boots on the ground, you have a, a rucksack. You got to put what you can in there to, to do the, jo- the same job. And now I was left with a few fewer tools, but I've still got to be a father. I've still got to be a husband, and I've still got to live a life. And f- since um, since my injury, since going blind, I'd begun speaking around the country and telling my story. And the story didn't change because or the the message didn't change because I lost my hearing. Also, it just became a little bit tougher, and I had to learn it all over again. Um, um, and tell him more about the marathons and the activities you were doing. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, in 2013, I joined an all-veteran, all-wounded veteran team up in 18,000-foot summit in Peru. Uh, I uh, joined a, a group called Team River Runner, who does uh, uh, adaptive kayaking, whitewater. In fact, just a couple of days ago, uh, five blind kayakers completed uh, the entire Grand Canyon. Uh, That's amazing. So That's amazing, Aaron. I want to ask you. Tell me about uh, and and Michaela. Please, uh, you know, uh, want to hear from you as well on this. But uh, how do you get to EOD fudge? I mean, I, I love fudge. Pretty much anything sweet, I'm a fan of. But how do you get to become entrepreneurs who have your own? Uh, what do we call yeah. it? A conf- confectionery company or what a fudge company yeah. yeah yeah so we um when aaron was completely deaf and blind he was locked in his body so he didn't have a lot that he could do um all of his accessibility features of his phone and macbook they all talked to him but those were kind of obsolete now that he lost his hearing So um, it was right around the holidays in 2015, and he started making um, Thanksgiving dinner for all of our friends and family, but he started making the desserts a few weeks in advance. Um, Do you want to chime in on 
Yeah, yeah. there was, uh, <laughs> it was it was one of those moments where I thought, man, I should have learned Braille. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was I was trapped. I was locked in my own body. All of those things that uh, the tools and techniques that I'd used that were mostly audio based. Uh, I, I couldn't. I couldn't utilize. I couldn't even get on my treadmill because my balance uh, was was shaky. So I realized that I could still cook. I it was muscle memory, and I I got into the kitchen and I was making all these desserts before weeks in advance. So much so that the the, the huge group of friends and family that we had invited for Thanksgiving just uh, couldn't eat at all. I was I was making so much, and I was finally after six months of total uh, darkness and total silence. I was finally I finally had a, a smile on my face, and I made so much fudge that Michaela had to sneak it out the front door. And I I say sneaking like you really got to be stealthy around a blind deaf guy, but. Uh, that's kind of how it got started. That's amazing. And uh, how how do people get your stuff, by the way? Yeah, so we run our entire business online, um, and we uh, it's at eodfudge.com. Um, and then we have Instagram and Facebook, but everything is purchased through the website. And then we make it and ship it out year-round during the summer months. We do warm weather shipping and package it on dry ice and in coolers. And during the winter, it just arrives, you know, in perfect condition because it's cool. Well, out. I'm going to get myself some fudge. And I also want to say to both of you, thank you so much for sharing your story. And, and Aaron, thank you for your service and also just for your, your inspiration. And, and uh, Michaela, thanks for being there with him to bring us all this and, yeah. and tell us about this. We really, we really, really do appreciate it. And have a great weekend. And we'll, we'll be in touch with you. And we, we wish you all the best with the company. Thanks, thanks so much. much. All right, team, we're going to hit a quick break. We'll be right back. The FBI says that home title theft is one of the fastest growing crimes out there. Brace yourselves, folks, because if you've ever had your credit card stolen, it's nothing compared to the hell you're in for if if these thieves get control of your home's title. It's not hard for them to do. They only have to have Internet access and do some research and then engage in a little bit of cyber fraud, and they replace you with an alias on your home's title online. They then borrow a lot of money, all the equity that they can, they can try to steal out of your house with all these different payments, right? That's what they're going to do. And you're you're only going to find out about this when you get the demands for payment from the person that issued the loan from the bank. Don't let this happen to you. For pennies a day, my home is protected by HomeTitleLock.com, okay? It protects the most valuable asset in my family. Go check it out. Go to HomeTitleLock.com. Again, it's a $100 value free, HomeTitleLock.com. Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome back, folks. I got to tell you, I'm a a little surprised by something. Uh, I, I guess Nike... Did not miscalculate, I guess, you know, because my, my initial sense was that Nike was bowing to political correctness with all this Colin Kaepernick stuff. And they, they just, you know, that, that the the corporate level, the corporate suite 
was making a decision here that was going to be bad for business, but they feel like they want to get invited. The people making the decisions, and this happens at a lot of companies, the people making decisions don't make what's the best decision for the company, but it's the best decision for them socially and professionally in that they want to be considered woke. They want to be considered hip. They want to be social justice aware and all that other stuff. I had assumed uh, that that was probably going to be the case when it came to the Colin uh, Kaepernick ad, but that's not the case, apparently. So uh, I, I look, I've, I tell you when I, when I maybe missed something. I mean, originally there was a little bit of a drop, I think, in the stock, but it has rebounded, and now Nike's Kaepernick ad, according to CNBC here, has drawn a surge in Instagram followers and also Twitter and Facebook followers. And it uh, Nike shares hit an all-time high on Thursday. So I've got to say, this is, you know, this certainly goes in the evidence pile for maybe they didn't totally miscalculate what their audience wants. Or, or at least they didn't miscalculate how this would play out with some people becoming much more devoted to the idea of getting Nike gear, right? That there'd be, it's almost like when a politician is speaking to his base versus to the general public and Nike here was going to their base, which is a lot of people who are liberal. Um, uh, there are obviously a lot of uh, minority males and females, but minorities in this country who buy Nike products and maybe there was a surge in interest as a result of it. And that's, look, Nike can make whatever business decisions they want about it. And if they were right on this, if the bottom line reflects that, well, then they were right and they get to uh, reap the rewards. I still, though, have a hard time with this believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything ad. I mean, Colin Kaepernick has not sacrificed anything. The guy had his career. NFL careers are notoriously short anyway. He, he had his career. He had like one or two really good years and made a ton of money. And then had some bad years and was was fading out and just wasn't particularly good. So I reject this notion that he has sacrificed everything. I don't even think he sacrificed anything. In fact, Kaepernick, like Nike, made what you could easily classify as a pure business decision. The idea here being that you're you know you're you're going to get more people buying shoes. If in fact you, or you know, buying Nike products in general, if you um, become social justice involved in some way, so I think that's you know, I, I just I wanted to call it out. I wanted to say, okay, here we go. We got Colin Kaepernick and this stuff, and, and then there's so Nike stocks at an all time high, and I got one more thing. And I know I feel like you guys, I don't know how many people that listen to the show like tennis. I get the sense not very many. Uh, I get the sense it's not a, a prominent sport among team buck in terms of watching at least i have no idea how many of you play i play tennis but you know who cares serena williams u.s open uh, meltdown was bs according to a a rival uh, I, i'm glad to see somebody calling this out uh world number 25 barbara strakova has said the mo the blow up was motivated purely by Williams' desperate situation as she could see the match slipping away. I love it. This is so true. She said, this is BS. For umpires, being women or men doesn't matter, Strakova told a Czech website. In comparison, I've never seen Rafael Nadal shouting like that with an umpire. 
Ramos is tough, one of the best umpires in the world. He did what he had to do in that match because she overstepped the limit. Did she have to behave differently only because she was Serena Williams? I find it interesting that she did it only when she was losing. Uh, you know, she also said, me as a woman, I take a lot of warnings. The WTA defense surprised me. Uh, will rules change in Serena's matches? If it's like this, let me know. Williams was fined $17,000. She won $1.85 million in prize money. You know, I'm just, it's nice, folks. The truth is nice. It, it feels good to be able to read the truth. And, and the whole, the Serena meltdown was BS. She's a bad sport. She's got bad sportsmanship. Look, you can be the best person on the team. You can be the best athlete in your sport in the world and still have bad sportsmanship. You can still be somebody who can't take losing well, who can't be bigger than that that particular moment of, of either victory or defeat. And, and Serena fits into that category. It's not the first time she's done this. So, you know, look, our sports figures are going to become increasingly politicized. And I think that's at least in part because there's a... Uh, it's really impossible for any of us to follow them. If you follow them on social media, they all want to share their political opinions now. You know, all these different sports figures think of themselves as having a voice that needs to be heard on, you know, any number of different issues. So we we just have to, I suppose, accept that if you're going to like somebody's athletic prowess, you might also have to hear what they think about tax policy. You might also have to sit back and listen to them wax philosophical about, immigration at the border and you know what's going on with family separation and and it's a shame because i always think of sports especially as a as a viewer i look i love playing sports although these days i'm old and don't play enough sports i used to play a lot of sports in fact when i lived in dc a long time ago i was part of a i was part of a weekend soccer league team i'd get up in the mornings early on saturday and go to a big field and play and it was it was a lot of fun uh but i don't do that stuff anymore just try to get to the gym once uh month so you know but the sports were a thing have been a thing for a lot of us where you can tune out all the rest of it and that's just changing very very rapidly uh that is going away and you're now going to have people in the sports world i think becoming really as politically involved as a lot of actors and actresses are that's where i see this and and you could say they're probably already there and it's largely a function of social media stuff. It's largely because we have so many different platforms and ways to hear from all these people. But, you know, Kaepernick, uh, Serena, you know, there are other athletes out there who are going to be making their voices heard on all this stuff. So just get ready for it. LeBron is more and more politically active these days, which I think is interesting. I do just wish that there would be some parts of American life where we could uh, all enjoy something without feeling like any moment we're going to get a, a lecture on how healthcare is a is a universal right or something like that. But that now is feeling more and more like a pipe dream. Doesn't seem to be the case. And that's because when you politicize everything, there is no escape. And that's kind of where we are. Um, I'm going to get into a, a whole bunch of, of roll call coming up, team. So uh, remember, if you want to be a part, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. We'll be right back. We've seen the video of Google, folks. We know that not only do they have to gather together and shed lots of liberal tears because Trump is president, but they have a real dislike for conservative ideas and ideology at the top level. And that's not just at Google. Some of these other social media giants have 
the exact same problem at Twitter and Facebook. Don't get caught up in all of that. Let's try something new. Let's go to a place where there's a conversation where there will be no censorship and absolutely no agenda other than letting you speak your mind, share your thoughts, share information, and do so in a community that you control and you create. Snippy.com. I've got a Snippy.com account I post there. Let me tell you, this is an up-and-coming social media platform where there's no bias, no agenda, no shadow banning or purges of conservatives. Go check it out for yourself. S-N-I-P-P-Y.com. That's Snippy.com. So some big news, folks, from the Department of Justice that has to do with nationwide injunctions. Now, that might not sound like all that much to you, uh, but I can tell you that it is really significant and it goes to one of the primary uh, impediments that's been put in place to slow down and stop the Trump administration from actually enacting policy. We have somebody who can speak with uh, particular expertise this issue because she's a, a part of the DOJ and, and this whole effort. We have Assistant Attorney General uh, of for Legal Policy, Beth Williams, on the show right now. Beth, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Buck. It's nice to join you. So uh, the, the DOJ made this announcement yesterday. Tell us what this means. I mean, what, first of all, what is, what is a nationwide injunction? So that's a great question. Um, a nationwide injunction, or it's also called a limitless injunction, or as Justice Gorsuch called it, a, a cosmic injunction, he called it an oral argument, is when um, a judge issues an order that binds or applies their ruling to parties who are not even before the case. So people call it a nationwide injunction to suggest that it has nationwide reach, but really it means that a judge is ruling beyond just the parties before him or her. They're binding, you know, essentially everyone in the country. So how has how has that played out? I mean, what what are some prominent instances of nationwide injunction, and and what's now the the Department of Justice under this administration? I mean, what what's the the policy going to be in terms of dealing with them? Well, the Attorney General has been speaking out about it quite a bit, and just yesterday the Attorney General issued litigation guidance to every litigator in the Department of Justice to make clear what the Department's position is on these unlawful injunctions. And basically it's to say that there's there's really no basis for these, either constitutionally or in history. Um, you know, before 1963, not one court in the country had ever issued such a broad injunction. And by our estimate, there have been about 1.5 per year against uh, Presidents Reagan and Clinton and the George W. Bush administration. In Under President Obama's administration, that went up slightly to about 2.5 per year. And now, in the first year and a half of President Trump's administration, there have been at least 25 nationwide injunctions. That's more than an eight-fold increase, and it exceeds the entire eight-year total against President Obama in, in his two full terms. And, so and would this include, for example, uh, the so-called Muslim ban? I mean, the, the administration's policy about, about vetting and, uh, and, and allowing people into the country? Was that a, would that fall under nationwide injunction status, what happened there initially? I mean, obviously, the, the courts have looked at it since then. Right. So with regard to the executive order um, on the travel ban, you saw, that's exactly right, you saw courts 
um, issuing these nationwide injunctions kind of all over, um, Hawaii, Maryland, a few other places. And then it was also, it's also come up with regard to um, the sanctuary cities policy. You saw um, Chicago uh, seek and receive a nationwide injunction. They were arguing that even though they're a sanctuary city, they should be able to get their federal grant money. And what the court did was they the court agreed with Chicago, but it then went even further and said not just Chicago gets its money, but every every city, every sanctuary city in the country should too. And even just so so folks can understand this, uh, Beth, when when somebody when when one judge uh, when when one federal federal court judge says, you know the, that the president of the United States or that the administration, the executive branch of the government can't do this thing, right? Whatever it may be, you know, when they put one of these injunctions forward. What happens next? I mean, what is the process to adjudicate? Is this judge right? Does this judge essentially have veto power over whatever policy he decides? I mean, how, where does it go? Well, that's, you know, that's a great point, Buck, because that's exactly what's happening. I mean, what what's happening is a, a one single district court judge, you know, basically rules um, an executive order or a policy or a law uh, unlawful, and then you can appeal it up to the appellate court and then up to the Supreme Court. But what it does is it completely stops any other judge from anywhere in the country from deciding that issue. So rather than just you know, deciding the case before them, and you know, some another judge will decide the case before her, and another judge will decide the case before him. It puts a, a complete freeze on the policy across the entire country, which which um, prevents other courts from considering it. So that's a very important part of this. I mean, for 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 everybody listening, and and for me to keep this all straight in my head as well. It's not that a judge has really decided. It's the injunction is kind of a pre decision decision. Right. I mean, so there can be either a preliminary injunction, which happens just on the, the likelihood of success, which can happen very early in the case, or it can be a more permanent injunction, which happens later in the case. But either way, it has the same effect of basically halting whatever's going on nationwide without other um, judges having the opportunity to consider the same question. And the pro- one of the problems with that is that it, it invites kind of unvarnished judge shopping. Um, it means that plaintiffs are going to run to the to the district where they think that they have the best chance, the, the judge that's most likely to agree with them. And that really undermines faith in our judiciary because it makes people think that judges are political actors, which, of course, they shouldn't be. Now, what is the uh, DOJ policy doing that's different? Uh, you know, tell, the announcement yesterday is saying, what, that, that there's a challenge now to just the notion of a nationwide injunction or is this just how that how uh, DOJ officials should respond in litigation to judges that issue one of these what happens now so that's exactly what it is now um, one point I should make is that this is really a bipartisan issue every Justice Department for decades has recognized that courts have to limit relief to the parties before them. So um, President Obama's Justice Department also took this position in court, and uh, and obviously Attorney General Sessions is taking this position too. The guidance that Attorney General Sessions issued yesterday is to all litigators, whether they be you know in Maine Justice or in U.S. Attorney's offices throughout the country, to say this is the department's position on this overbroad relief, and these are the types of arguments that you need to make in court against them, absent, you know, some higher authorities giving an exception. Anything else, by the way, Beth, on the horizon for DOJ that we should be expecting? Any other big announcements pending? 
Oh, um, you know, not not that are coming to mind right now, but th- this is a pretty big one. I'm, I think this is the department taking a strong stand, um, and it's a strong rule of law stand. So you right. know, well, should be um, applauded for it. We're, we're fans of the AG around here. He's been a, a, a regular uh, guest of the show when he, when he has the time, when he's not being chief law enforcement officer for the country. So please give the... Uh, Give the AG our regards. And thank you so much for coming by. Uh, Beth Williams, everybody, Assistant Attorney General at the uh, Department of of Justice. Beth, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Buck. Man, you know, guys, this is the kind of thing where, you know, finally I feel like the, the, you know, now now I can say what I think about some of the stuff, the hashtag judiciary or hashtag resistance uh, judiciary. Well, I guess you called them the hashtag judiciary, too. Uh, you know, at least now there's going to be some some con- more concerted pushback from DOJ. I mean, this is crazy when you, when you have one judge who can decide. You know what? I don't like this. I don't like this Trump administration policy. So I'm going to decide for all other judges that this policy cannot go into effect right now, and we're going to have to work it out through all of the courts. I mean, that you know, there's there's a degree of well. Can can a judge do this on on pretty much any matter that comes before him? You say, oh, you know, I don't like what the Trump administration is doing on this thing, so I'm going to issue this. And important, she made that distinction between a preliminary injunction and a, and a permanent injunction. Um, but it, certainly with the preliminary injunction, it's just, well, this is what I think. We haven't even had a presentation of the various sides of this case. And uh, yeah, it's uh, this has been early on in the Trump administration, the uh, judges, federal judges, were viewed, I think, by a lot of, of people as the uh, as, as a primary mechanism of resistance against Trump. That's what they were hoping that they would that these left wing legislate from the bench justices would come forward and would say, you know what, uh, even if it looks bad, even if it's obviously political, what I'm doing, if it slows down Trump, if it stops Trump, I'm all for it. So that. I'm hoping we'll will stop or at least be a little bit harder going forward for uh, for the, the 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 loony left judges that are out there because there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. So uh, anyway, I wonder, Mike. You think she'll actually is Mike there? Is, is Mike out? What is he? Oh, there he is. I was gonna say you think she'll tell our man our man Jeff Sessions we said what's up. I feel like she's not gonna tell him. <laughs> she yeah. should tell him. Yeah, I don't he's know our she, boy. She, yeah, she, you're my boy, Jeff. He may, like not, Jeff. he may not know that he's our boy. You know. Okay. Yeah, I know. I don't think we all are. Yeah, I mean, he kind of, I think he kind of knows who we are, but you know, <laughs> close enough, close enough. All right, T, we'll be right back. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to eleven. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to be part of Roll Call. Man, this weekend, I got to tell you, folks, I'm I'm excited that it's going to be kind of gray and wet and cold where I am here in the swamp because I'm, I'm, planning, I'm planning to just hunker down, eat some food, Netflix and nap, not to be confused with Netflix and chill. Uh, Miss Molly is away right now on, on a family trip. So I'm just going to Netflix and nap and uh, probably order in some some kind of ethnic food. 
Uh, is that John? Is are we allowed to call it ethnic food now, or is that not like what else do you call it? It's not American food, foreign food, but it comes. I just from call here. it what it is. If it's Korean or Chinese, that's what I call it. You know I don't what, John? Use the term ethnic probably food. correct. Yeah, it's because I'm yeah, Italian like if and I want to order Italian, Italian food, ethnic food. So yeah, I want the uh, spaghetti and a pasta. You know what I mean? No, no, no. <laughs> John's not having any of it. All right, all right. Please clap. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> oh yeah, man, I remember that. Um, I was thinking. I, I'm, I'm t- telling you the truth. I was thinking about uh, making some uh, slow cooker meatballs earlier this week. I found a great slow cooker meatball recipe, but it's just too much work. <laughs> and I was like, I can either order slow cooker. I mean, I can either order you know a cheeseburger, or I can make slow cooker meatballs in about an hour and you know sit around for three hours while it cooks. I decided to just order. But uh, this week, I'm going to do some, a weekend rather, I'm going to do some resting because next week, folks, next week's going to be a big week in Newsland, let me tell you. Uh, That's, I I think you're going to get that declassification going. You're going to have a lot of things. Trump's going to release some information and it it, it could be one of the wildest weeks yet of the Trump presidency. I, I really mean that. Based on what I'm being told right now, next week could just get off the chain. All right. Um, we're all, okay. You're right. Sorry. John's like, John, see, John's the people's advocate. He's the team's advocate. He knows that I just sit here and blab. All right. All right. Uh, Chuck writes, Buck for the life of me. Um, I cannot for the, uh, I, I cannot find the social media app snippy or any variation on the net. Can you send me a link? Chuck snippy.com S N I P P Y.com. Look, they've just got it going. It's early stage of a new social media platform. But, you know, just think of it this way. The, the, the team can kind of take it over and create a, a an outpost of the Freedom Hut on snippy.com. So there you have it. Uh, Greg writes, Shields high, Buck. Every time my wife tells me that I drive her crazy, I bust out fine young cannibals pretty much exactly like you just did to, in fact, drive her crazy. It makes me laugh. I, it makes her plot my death via poison. Just kidding. Worth it uh, Worth it every time. Love the show as always. OSS, fellow gray beard millennial. Uh, Greg, great to hear from you. And yeah, <clears throat> fine young cannibals should be celebrated much more broadly, I think, now as in, in our culture. You know, people need... I, I think most people... Everyone knows this song. I don't think that many people know who does... She drives me crazy. You know... And it's, it's so fun to sing, too, right? Like, I mean, that's the second time now you've heard me sort of sing something this week, so. Michael writes, Buck, love the show. Gives me something to do at night while my wife is watching The Bachelor or whatever. Michael, I'm there for you, my man. Been listening to your podcast for several weeks now. Uh, you're tied for my favorite with Bongino, uh, but behind Rush. Okay, I'll take I'll take the two spot with Bongino. Dan Bongino is a great man and a great American. And, of course, Rush is... Rush. So that's all that needs to be said. Good to know we have some young up and coming talent out there. Keep up the good work from Mike. Well, thank you very much, Mike. And I appreciate that you're a new member of the uh, the podcast squad. Great to have you with me here in the hut. And uh, I hope that you guys have noticed that we're getting that podcast out earlier because you know we're just trying to make sure we get it up as quickly as we can during the show and after the show. Uh, so look for it. You know, it should be up most nights by 7 Eastern or so, I think. So, uh, and we're going to try to push even further than that. 
Rita writes, Shields High Buck, just started watching all The Office episodes. I don't remember why I didn't watch when they were new. Being so fresh in my head, it's difficult to imagine Krasinski as a serious Jack Ryan. Keep up the good work. By the way, having your show available earlier helps with my bedtime. Your broadcast here ends at midnight. Well, Rita, that's why we're, we're, we really want to make it so that everybody can listen to the show. And that's why we're pushing the podcast out early. Everyone can listen to the show in the evening. And for folks on the West Coast, it'll be pretty much in drive time for you. So a lot of you hopefully be able to listen to it on your way home from work. So that's why there's this big push now, because I just I don't like when we have to have a lag and, and people want to listen and, and they can't. So we're going to make sure we get that up early. And you guys let me know if we're not getting it up earlier than, say, seven Eastern, uh, then I got to give uh, I got to give our imaginary intern a code red. We don't have an intern, so I can say terrible things about him because he doesn't exist. Brian writes, hey, Buck, if you're looking for a good comedian, check out Gabriel Iglesias. He's not political, typically family friendly, does voices and is pretty energetic. Just good, wholesome comedy that everyone can enjoy. Great show as always. Shields high, Brian. Oh, well, thank you so much, Brian. I, I have never heard of... John, have you heard of Gabriel Iglesias? No, I haven't. I know Enrique, and I'm a little jealous because he, I think, married Anna Kornikova, who was one of my crushes back in high school. I was... She's... I think she's my age, maybe a little... She's probably a little younger than me. Uh, but I was... Anna Kornikova was... Uh, High on the Anna Kornikova, Jessica Biel. These are some of the ones that I was particularly enthusiastic about from Celebrity World as I was growing up. Uh, as to uh, Iglesias, I'll check it out. Uh, I'll check it out for sure. Uh, anybody who look, if there's anyone who could actually make me laugh these days in the comedy circuit world, I'd, I'd be really, uh, I'd be really psyched about that. I feel like it's it's really a rarity these days. Richard writes, I'm listening to your boy, Sean P., give an interview on WMAL right now. He's doing a great job. Oh, you mean the one and only Sean Parnell? Sean Parnell is is a fantastic guy, and uh, he's one of, my, one of the nicest and most genuine people that I've met in this media business since I started. Uh, and, and what's interesting is when you read his memoir, and he's very humble about it, but he's also a, you know, he, he is a, a warrior, a true warrior, uh, a door kicking, you know, terrorist killing warrior. And uh, he's he's just I'm glad he's on our side. But he's also such a good dude. And I really hope that his book takes off. You know, I'll just I'll just I'm putting this out there, folks. You'll notice that uh, I had Jesse Kelly and Sean Parnell on my show. We had this really fun podcast, the Freedom Hut podcast. You can still download it. Still fun to listen to. It's just on the feed. Go under iTunes, Freedom Hut. Uh, but you notice I have them both on my show. And within a month. Jesse Kelly gets his own radio show down in Houston on a great station down there. And Sean Parnell has a new book that comes out. I'm not saying it's related, but I'm not saying it's not either. Uh, we have Pablo who writes in. Oh, here we go. Great show again last night. Lots of topics to discuss, but I'll focus on two. First, about the kids saying they shouldn't have to do things that scare them in school. From the outset, that is ridiculous. It is absolutely critical to learn to overcome obstacles and fear, if not in a place with academic freedom, uh, not I did say the vomit-inducing safe space, then where? Uh, at VMI, we had a thing called Rat Challenge that forced us to face our fears. Mine, in this case, uh, was is heights. 
between doing the high ropes course 30 to 50 feet in the air to climbing 100 to 200 foot in the air and a few other events that all scared the hell out of me. Uh, by facing my fears, it helped to give me confidence that although I may not be comfortable in a situation, I can persevere and, heaven forbid, do well and gain confidence in myself. Second, anyone that's talking trash about 80s music is just crazy. Every Friday since 2006 has been 80s day in my office or cubicle, as the case uh, has often been. People walk in and judge it first, and then they realize it's amazing and stay a little longer and keep coming back. Starts the weekend off right and breaks the monotony of the day. Hope you're well, brother. And as always, shields high from my man Pablo, who's got two uh, adorable kids in his photo with him. Uh, Pablo, I agree with you on facing up to the fears, my friend. I think that's something that we all should do. And especially a fear where there's really no, you know, it's one thing to have a fear of, of heights where you're terrified you're going to, maybe you're going to die or something. A fear of public speaking embarrassment is not enough to prevent people from actually having to face their fears, right? If you really think that a, a spider is going to eat you, well, maybe that's a fear that we have to work with a little more. But if you're just afraid of speaking in front of people because you don't think you're so great at it, I'm very, in my mind, I'm very clear on how you've got to face up to that fear. Remember, I, I sit here before you, or you can hear me on radio, as somebody who had to go to a speech therapist, uh, and work on a speech impediment. And now I'm a, I mean, not that I'm some big deal, but I'm a nationally syndicated radio host. I did fill in for Mr. Rush Limbaugh many times and with, with considerable success. So, you know, I'm just saying. Uh, that was a good thing that my parents decided to have me tackle that problem young and go go all in to overcome it. And uh, it's just a, it's a reminder though, folks, I remember what it was like to have people think that I would say things strangely and it was very, uh, look, it was embarrassing and very undermining. And I'm very, very thankful that I got to a point where I, I didn't have that challenge anymore. All right, we got more roll call. Stay with me. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Karen, first up here in Roll Call. Hey, Buck, just letting you know my husband is a new listener to your podcast like me and can't get enough. We listen while we work, and they are always thought-provoking and informative podcasts. We appreciate your level-headed approach. And I also want to thank you for the heads up on the Jack Ryan series. We aren't able to binge watch, which would be awesome, but we are just loving it. I remember reading Hunt for Red October, and as soon as I was done, thinking if it ever came out in a movie format, I was in. Well, of course it did, and I fell in love with every one of Tom Clancy's books and movies. Again, great call on the series. Oh, Karen, thank you so much, and I'm really glad you're enjoying it. And uh, I'm trying to find a new series right now. So any of you who want to give me a suggestion for a new series, by all means. Um, keep in mind, I've seen a lot of series already, so I might not be able to take your suggestion because I might have already seen it. Uh, but I, I need something new, especially this week. I, I want to hunker down and be a lazy, lazy man this weekend. That's my... I've earned it. I've had a long, I've had a long week. Uh, so that's my, I did have though, I'll tell you this folks. I, I visited some friends last night in Baltimore. Place I don't get to that often, but occasionally I get up there. And I had a steak at a place called the Prime Rib in, I, I guess it's downtown Baltimore. It was one of the best steaks I've ever had. It was one of the best steaks I've ever had. I mean, they, it had kind of a, a crispness on the outside, a kind of a, a crust, a caramelization that had formed. It had seared it so perfectly. I got I got a bone-in ribeye, tomahawk. Oh, my gosh. 
It was very good. It was very expensive. I won't even tell you. John, how much do you think the Tomahai Ribbock at the at the prime rib in, in Baltimore costs? $43.75. 70 bucks. $70. Yeah. Yeah. Very expensive. I mean, it's not quite in Kobe beef territory, but it, it was pricey. I was like, whoa, that's expensive. Now you got to do some oh. more fill-ins for Rush. So you can yeah, I gotta make, do something. Up that, make up that uh, 70 bucks. Got to borrow some of my friends, you know, weekend Uber situations and, and do a little side hustle with the Uber. Uh, Karen also writes, I think I tweeted you about a week ago on the fact that I love your Obama impersonation, but not enough with the S's. I swear if I have to listen to one more of his ridiculous speeches with that S sound, I'm going to shoot the TV. Um, I uh, Do you ever hear this S thing, John, that they talk about? I never noticed it. <clears throat> I've never noticed it either, and I feel like I listen to Obama a lot. I listen to the way he talks, and I listen to the way that he lectures, because he always lectures people, and that's the way he talks. And if you hear him when he's off script, there's a lot of, and then this thing happened, and this other thing, and this other thing. This is the, that's Obama's cadence. We're all told that he was the greatest, most gifted, rhetorically uh, gifted politician of his generation, but... I, I was never I was never that impressed. He's good on prompter giving a speech. Uh, if you're a Democrat and you like to hear that kind of stuff, you know he he is very polished, no question about it. And you know he's got a good his voice tone, everything is good. Unlike Hillary, who's just like hello, which is never good. Tyson writes, Buck, I love your show. I listen on iHeartRadio. I'm a butcher and raise beef. I am declaring today that I'll be your expert on all things involving meat. I have eaten every cut of beef known to man, and the ribeye wins, hands down. Keep up the good work, Tyson. Well, Tyson, you obviously are a great American, and you have fantastic taste in radio shows, so thank you very much for listening. And you also have fantastic taste in red meat. Uh, clearly, the ribeye isn't... I was going to say it's the, it's the Cadillac of steaks, but is Cadillac considered a... Do we like Cadillacs, John? You know, if somebody, if you're about to win a new luxury car, would Cadillac be something you'd think about, or are you you like a Japanese or a German import guy? I like German cars. Me Sorry. too. Why are German cars so good? Uh, but they are. Kathy writes, "Great show as usual." I have to agree with the person who mentioned Obama's whistling lisp. It used to drive me nuts. What are you guys, John? I'm losing my mind over here. Everybody else hears this Obama whistling lisp. I've never heard it. Team Buck is gaslighting us. I think Team Buck is gaslighting us, dude. What is going on here? I do not understand. I'm sitting here. I'm thinking. I I can't imagine not picking this up at some point. Uh, but I'm gonna have to listen. Man, you guys are, they're gaslighting me so much, I'm going to have to listen to some Obama speeches over the weekend. Oi. Buck, uh, this is from Don. Love the show, great hair, yada, yada. I have, <laughs> thanks, Don. I have many friends and clients in Puerto Rico, and the federal government descended on the island like an invasion. My friends sent photos of military ships, trucks, and helicopters in great quantity. The reported mortality rate in Puerto Rico is 8.7 per 1,000. Not bad if you figure 80-year average lifespan, which is 12.8 five deaths per 1,000. So with a 2017 population of 3.3 million, on average, 29,000 Puerto Ricans pass every year or 14,500 every six months versus the reported 3,000 for the six months following Maria. Don, you're looking down in the weeds on the math there and I'll just take your word. I I couldn't really follow along, but uh, sounds good. 
That's going to be it for uh, this edition of the Bucks Exton Show. As I said, please uh, do tell somebody about the show. Tell them to download it. If you are listening live on radio, please do go on iTunes in case you ever need to listen via podcast or you want to listen to a part again or on demand. iTunes, the Bucks Exton Show. I'll be back on Monday. Until then, my friends, Shields High.